The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. You're watching Scorebox. Let's get into your headlines. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos escalates his public spat with President Biden over inflation, accusing the White House of, quote, misdirection over claims that billionaire tax avoidance is helping fuel price pressures. The former Fed chair Ben Bernanke telling CNBC exclusively that the U.S. will likely avoid a severe recession, but that the central bank waited too long to tackle surging inflation. I think, in retrospect, yes, it was a mistake, and I think they agree it was a mistake. Uh, there were a number of reasons for it. One of the reasons was that they wanted not to shock the market. Chinese tech stocks lead gains across Asia as JP Morgan turns positive on the sector after previously calling the space uninvestable. Elon Musk and Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal trade barbs over Twitter bots as the Tesla boss says lowering his bid for the social media giant is not out of the question. And French President Emmanuel Macron appoints Elizabeth Bourne as the country's new prime minister, setting the stage for a cabinet reshuffle as he embarks on his second term in office. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos has attacked the Biden administration over its handling of rising inflation. In a series of tweets going back to Friday, Bezos criticized President Biden's view that hiking taxes on America's corporations would help bring down inflation, adding Twitter's disinformation board should investigate the president's remarks. The White House hit back, saying it was no surprise that Bezos would not support a wealth tax and attacked his opposition to organized labor efforts at Amazon. Overnight, Bezos lashed out again, saying the government's Build Back Better program would have exacerbated price pressures and that he was relieved the bill had failed. Well, former Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke has told CNBC the U.S. Central Bank waited too long to address rising inflation. Speaking to CNBC's Andrew Ross Sorkin in an exclusive one-to-one -one interview, Bernanke said Chair Jerome Powell had been too hesitant in unwinding the Fed's ultra-loose monetary policy out of fear of shocking the stock market, but believes he and the Board of Governors have now acknowledged that they made a mistake. Well, the forward guidance, I think, overall, on the margin, uh, slowed the response of the Fed to the um, inflation problem last year, to, to, to some extent. So does uh, that mean it was a mistake? I think, in retrospect, yes, it was a mistake, and I think they agree it was a mistake. Well, Bernanke also said ongoing price pressures could see the Fed lift rates to around 3%, but he maintained the U.S. economy is strong enough to endure such a tighter monetary environment. I still tend to believe that some of these forces uh, pushing up inflation, like the supply chains, like the preference for durable goods over services, um, and some of the commodity price increases, gas prices and so on, uh, that they will at least stabilize and begin to moderate uh, sometime during this year, which would mean that inflation will come down to some extent, 
let's say by itself, but without the Fed's direct intervention. If that happens, the Fed would have to raise rates perhaps uh, moderately above neutral, say in the threes somewhere. When they do that, um, they'll slow demand. But as Jay Powell has pointed out, the economy is pretty strong. We're not going into a recession as often as the case with a troubled economy. In fact, the underlying economy, as we recover from the pandemic, is quite strong. <coughs> uh, so Ben Bananke there talking to Andrew Ross Sorkin. Um, we started the show this morning. Good morning, Karen, good morning. by the way. Uh, we started the show this morning obviously talking about how the world's second richest man is now taking on on Twitter the leader of the world's largest economy in a row about inflation. And we know that both of these individuals have quite a, a lot invested in trying to preserve their reputation when it comes to the management of their own business and, of course, of the, uh, the U.S. economy here. Um, to be quite frank, it's a little bit push-me-shove-you. The world's second uh, uh, richest man probably doesn't want uh, stealth wealth taxes and probably suspects that that's what's coming and the administration will use the excuse of uh, inflation and a slowing economy as a reason to impose those taxes on wealthy individuals in the United States. And conversely, clearly the Biden administration and the Fed have been behind the curve in tackling inflation, so maybe the criticism is warranted at this stage. But directed from Jeff Bezos, I'm not sure it gets a lot of traction with the average mum and pop in the United States or anywhere else for that matter. So let's just move away. Let me move away from that for a moment. The thing that I'm fascinated by is the fact that we've got bond yields falling here. We've got equity markets struggling to make gains at this stage, but we've got commodity prices surging. And it's a complicated mixture, I think, for investors to have, have to negotiate here. The bond market's telling us that inflation is peaking. The commodity market is saying, oh, no, it isn't. Yeah, a couple of points that I'll pick up on, on the Bezos one first up. You could take the commentary a little bit further. Don't forget the White House, effectively under Biden, has been pushing for more unionization in the workforce mm. over at Amazon. You can think about what that means at a time when there's fairly tight skill set, that if you have more organized labor, then that has even further potential to push up wages and other conditions which cost the business money. So potentially even uh, that type of organization could be inflationary these days as well. But it does go to the tension that uh, Bezos is seeing with the Biden administration. But I think the more interesting remarks are really from Ben Bernanke. I mean, this is a man who's got serious credentials here. And he did uh, effectively point out that perhaps there was some reluctance to move in there earlier on with these rate increases uh, because there were concerns about the market reaction that, uh, that uh, Powell this time did not want to shock the market and he'd been part of the Benenke team around the uh, taper tantrum that had happened previously so he was aware of the implications of moving towards that exit too quickly so there was a reason I think that was uh, interesting stirred up by Ben Benenke there and you know he also uses his language very delicately he talks about in hindsight as well and I think that's the thing if you think about how much stimulus had been poured into these economies for many many years with almost no sign of inflation anywhere mm -hmm. to suddenly have it in spades was quite a sea change not just from investors, but also for a central bank. I mean, that is an excuse you can see. But I, I think the other interesting comments from Bernanke too are, are just what will it take to bring inflation down? And he was very fixated, laser focused on those inflation expectations that you still got these uh, pandemic uh, and, and other effects from the war in Ukraine now flushing through the system, driving up prices and, and hopefully that starts to abate or moderate. But the one thing that is still a challenge here is that if people think prices are going to 
go up, then they start changing their behavior. And that is typical economist uh, thinking around how you expect to tackle inflation down the track. Yeah, and I think that's fascinating because we had a blowout consumer credit number, didn't we, for March in the United States. And it was 52.4 billion, a huge step up on the run rate we've seen in that number before. And you could look at it in one way and say, well, look, this is crazy. People are just rushing out and spending money that they're not going to have going forward if we end up with a recession in the United States and many of those unfortunate people perhaps losing their job in a downturn. But you could also look at it from the perspective that you've presented for us. This is rational behavior who think the price of products and services are going up in the future and they are doing what they can now to get ahead of those price rises and buying the things they think they're going to need and they're buying it now because they're worried about those price spikes. Is it that or is it the fact that um, uh, there's a third option here, everything is fine with the real economy, nobody should be worrying about this. What we're seeing here is a financial market effect where ultimately the highly overvalued um, equity markets are just responding to the expectation that there will be less liquidity and less cheap money going forward. And the real economy will skate through this unscathed. Now, I don't think many of us believe that that will actually happen, but there is a view, and that's why consumers are still behaving by going out and spending money. I think if you look at the consumer on the back of the pandemic, I mean, they were locked up for so long, constrained in what they could and couldn't buy. And, you know, what they could buy, they did. And initially, that was devices. What they could buy secondary, that was around services spending. So you've seen yeah. these real changes in behaviours. And if you think about the third leg of this, well, people were allowed out. They could spend the money how they wanted. They still have a little bit left over from the pandemic stimulus checks. They had uh, the security of employment, perhaps also the ability for the first time in many years to go and negotiate higher wages. And, of course, having low interest rates at the same time. That is a catalyst for saying, I want to buy all the things I couldn't buy before. So I think it has triggered this spending that we have not witnessed for a long, long time, and hence the inflationary aspect that's come with it on top of all the other supply chain constraints and the the raw material prices and the high labour costs, uh, logistics and everything else built into the system. I think there has been a layer on top. The question is if that starts to change now, because we have had this narrative from the central bank that rates are going up and we've already seen some action. So let's just see how quickly the so-called blunt instrument starts to impact the consumer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's just mention uh, Walmart and Home Depot because we will get a a look at these retailers' numbers today in the United States. And it's just worth pointing them out. I mean, another reason why Jeff Bezos may be angry, of course, Karen, is that massive uh, write-down that they took on the the Rivian investment. Um, But as we look at the other retailers here, there have been some challenges and um, neatly pointed out by our in-house team here at CNBC, consumer discretionary currently has the worst earnings growth rate for the first quarter, down 29.3%. Now, some of that obviously is down to that huge uh, Rivian loss on the quarter. But I think, Karen, it also plays to the other question that investors need to be asking themselves at the moment as they look at their equity positioning. How much of any inflation hit is going to be taken in margin by them and how much of it are they actually going to be able to pass on down the line to uh, their own customers and uh, other businesses. That's right. I mean, it's called pricing power, isn't it? And we've seen a lot of investors look for stocks 
that have pricing power in this type of environment. But more broadly, if you look at the stock market action, we've got the split picture taking place. The Dow again gliding high, 26 points to the upside, only a fraction in the green versus a little bit of red by the close for the S&P, the Nasdaq, a 1.2 down for the Nasdaq. It has been a patchy old performance. I think the year-to-date performances are still stunning because it does tell you about what sort of value territory we're in, whether we're anywhere close to that 25-odd percent that's come off the NASDAQ. And uh, we will be talking a little bit later about whale-watching, what some of the big investors have been doing in the market, uh, particularly around this selling. I think it's quite interesting to see that repositioning, the opportunities that uh, some of the big investors are finding. Don't forget, if you think about some big institutions, we have heard about the, the amount of deleveraging that's gone on week after week. Some hedge funds t- cutting back those positions as well given the amount of volatility it does beg the question if they do see those signs from the whale watching what the level of confidence could be on the back of uh, some of those strategies but as uh, you can see weaker day playing out for some quarters of this market still let me take you to treasuries we can see how we're traveling uh, we're still in that range on that u.s 10-year yield. We haven't strayed too far from this 2.92 level, about eight basis points off the 3% mark. 2.61 is what we're now watching at the, the short end of the two-year. The dollar, as a result, uh, we have got sterling euro bouncing this morning, claiming just a little bit of territory. Two tenths on sterling, 123.38 or 40 roughly. We've got 104.40 on euro and uh, dollar just climbing a little bit versus the Japanese yen in the morning trade. It is weaker versus the Chinese currency. And to the U.S. futures ahead on Wall Street later on today, we are watching a little bit of green materialize onto the boards. So you can see it does look like a, a modestly upbeat start for the trading session versus a slightly patchy finish that we closed up uh, shop on yesterday. Let's, uh, let's throw in a few more calls on uh, market direction here. Goldman Sachs has now cut its price target for the S&P 500 for a third time this year, forecasting a, a level now of 4,300 by year end. However, the bank warned the index could plunge as low as 3,600 if the U.S. falls into recession. It says there is a 35% chance of this happening over the next two years. Goldman's latest forecast makes it the least bullish of the Wall Street investment banks. Let's get to David Sakara, the chief U.S. market strategist at Morningstar. David, good to see you. Well, uh, a timely reminder that this is not only a stock market, but a market of stocks. As you've analysed now the pullback that we've seen in these US markets, how far away are we from fair value on these stocks? Well, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, we did start off the year in overvalued territory. But, you know, according to our numbers, we think the US equity market has fallen, you know, far enough and fast enough that we think it swung you know, too far to the downside here in the short term, you know, especially among growth stocks. So what we do is we take a bottom-up composite of all the stocks that's covered by our equity analyst team. And when we put that together, we think the U.S. market's actually trading at about a 15% discount now to our fair value. And when we break that down a little bit further, we think value stocks are trading at about a 10% discount and growth stocks are at a 20% discount. In terms of the economic outlook uh, that those businesses are going to have to operate in then, do you not subscribe to Ben Bernanke's concern that the U.S. may be had, heading into a stagflationary environment? No, and in fact, you know, I think we're a little bit outside of consensus that you know, for GDP this year, you know, our U.S. economics team is still looking at 3.5% and then also looking at 3% next year. So you know, on a historical context, that's still relatively robust you know, economic growth. 
And as far as the inflation goes, you know, our average inflationary rate for this year that we're forecasting is four and a half percent. And we're actually looking for that to come down, you know, to below two percent next year. David, you point out a lot of the undervaluation that you are seeing in the markets is really around four companies uh, that constitute uh, the um, market capital coverage. Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft, Meta Platforms. Does that give you cause for concern, though, given we had a bit of a look at some of these numbers uh, recently? And, of course, uh, there are some concerns about subscribers still, I think, for the social media platforms, even though it wasn't about outing for Facebook this time around. Yeah, and I do find it interesting that this time around, you know, when you look at those four stocks, you know, that is a pretty significant amount of the market undervaluation. Again, because they're so large in market cap, they do skew, you know, the overall broad market valuation. So if we were actually to strip those out of our calculation, that overall market valuation would go from you know, a 15% discount down to a 9% discount. So again, a little bit less, but still you know, kind of in that area that we think the market is undervalued and is actually a good time now for investors to be reallocating some of their portfolios you know, back into stocks. And specifically, you know, those four stocks, we find them all to be attractive you know, at these levels right now. So just give us a sense of where else you're finding value, because we, we were talking before about the whale watching, that some of the mm-hmm. large investors are also dabbling in this market sell-off. Where else do you see value at this point? Well, one of the themes that we've been talking about for a while is just that we do expect consumer spending will shift back more to you know historical normalized kind of levels. So again, moving out of goods back into services. And according to our numbers, you know, there needs to be at least a $450 billion shift just to get back to where that trend was. So we're looking for, you know, a lot of those normalization kind of stocks in the second half of the year to perform, you know, pretty well. So probably, you know, one of my favorite picks there is going to be Uber. So as people are going back out more, we're going to see an increase in the riders, the number of riders, you know, the frequency of rides that they take. Yeah, we expect that Uber should be free cash flow positive this year report, you know, positive earnings uh, in 2024 on a gap basis. You know, a couple of the other stocks that we like, you know, kind of in that theme would be, you know, the airlines, you know, specifically Delta. We think Delta is best leveraged to the return of the business traveler. And we expect, you know, travel for business to get back to pre-pandemic levels by 2024. In fact, along, you know, the same lines there, we also like uh, Sabre in the travel technology space and the booking space. We think that's also probably best leveraged in that area for the business traveler. And there's you know, a number of other you know, travel and entertainment stocks that we think should do pretty well. You know, Carnival Cruise Lines would be probably our best pick in the cruise line sector. You know, and in gaming, I would highlight Caesars. David, we, we were talking a little bit about Bezos v. Biden. Obviously, uh, Bezos um, didn't turn in the best quarter because the, of the Rivian loss here. But in terms of the general performance in, in the discretionary space, it's been really tough. I mean, what do you think we're going to learn today from, from Home Depot and, and the other major retailers that report? You know, we should see. And, you know, specifically like with Home Depot, you know, there's certainly been a lot of spending in the home improvement area over the past two years during the pandemic that I think pulled forward, you know, specifically from that space, you know, future sales. So I think, you know, Home Depot and Lowe's would be two stocks that, you know, I'd be pretty cautious about. You know, going back to Amazon, you know, yes, it's definitely up against some tough comps from the pandemic spending. You know, but in our view, you know, we think the market is actually undervaluing you know, AWS. You know, we're seeing good growth in that cloud space, as well as its advertising business is very valuable. 
David, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Uh, David Sicero with us, Chief U.S. Market Strategist at Morningstar, uh, with uh, somewhat opposing view, I think, to the broader market and the, some of the conditions we've seen. So, very interesting discussion. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think um, very upbeat on the earnings mm. outlook. Uh, very upbeat on these key stocks, which we know have outsized impact on the market, and, and you know the GDP number. Quite impressive as far as he's concerned going forward. And interesting that he just doesn't align with Bernanke at all. Yeah, and we're going to talk about other buyers in the market shortly. We're watching markets pour over top investors' picks after the 13F filing deadline. We'll discuss next. Uh, and for more on that inflation debate between President Biden and the Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, check out Squawk Box's podcast for all the details. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. The 13 F filings are in and major U.S. funds have been adjusting their positions on big tech names. Leslie Picker filed this report on how Warren Buffett navigated the quarter. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway making a lot of moves during the first quarter. In its 13F filing from the first three months of the year, Berkshire Hathaway disclosed uh, that it sold almost the entirety of its stake in Verizon, down from holding $8 billion worth of that stock at the end of 2021. Also, Berkshire Hathaway taking a new sizable stake in Citigroup, worth nearly $3 billion. Berkshire Hathaway has been a pretty active trader within the banking community, although it did dissolve the small amount that was left of Wells Fargo and hasn't owned J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs for quite some time now. Huge bump in Activision Blizzard during the quarter to hold more than $5 billion worth of stock at the end of March. However, we know from its shareholder meeting that Berkshire Hathaway actually purchased this as a merger arbitrage play awaiting uh, Activision's approvals to be acquired by Microsoft for about $69 billion that's going through the process now. Uh, Buffett said, though, that they now hold a 9.5% stake in Activision Blizzard, meaning they have been acquiring more stock in the six weeks since this filing has been marked to. Uh, there was also during the quarter a huge boost in Chevron shares by Berkshire Hathaway to hold $26 billion by the end of the quarter. We did know that amount, but it's nice to see it in print. Also, there was a big pairing back of, of the pharma trade that it had gotten into in recent years, selling uh, out of AbbVie entirely, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and pairing back its stake in Royalty Pharma by 83% during the quarter. As for Apple, which is uh, everyone's favorite investment to watch in terms of Berkshire Hathaway, the firm did buy 3.8 million more shares in Apple during the quarter. Uh, again, those positions are as of March 31st. They may have changed in the six weeks since then. For CBC Business News, I'm Leslie Picker. 
Third point, Stan Loeb also made big moves in big tech, closing out positions in Alphabet while selling large chunks of its shares in Amazon and Microsoft. Meanwhile, David Tepper doubled down on his positions in those same two tech stocks as he largely sold down other equities. And big short investor Michael Burry is uh, betting against Apple right now. Always fascinating to find out where the whales are putting their cash. Yeah, I think this might come as a relief for some of the small investors that have been wading back into the market. They'd like to hear what Warren Buffett's doing. And the fact he's been opportunistic in the market is uh, going to be an interesting you know, development for them. The other point is that I wonder whether over the longer term, whether we see a reassessment of growth and just how much in some of these up cycles some of the funds are willing to allocate. I mean, Tiger Global was another one that revealed their mm. filings. And this has been one of the biggest growth investors in the market. You've seen that they have well and truly cut a lot of their positions. Uh, they have uh, seen a, a retreat to in the, the performance of the stock portfolio. But um, some of the big stocks, I mean, they're just cutting back brutally. The, what they're down 43.7% this year in terms of losses, uh, down 15.2% in April, even as they were slicing some of those exposures. I mean, Robin Hood, they sold about their 80%, 80% of their stake in that particular company. Mm. I didn't talk about um, Peloton, but uh, some of the other big ones, they were certainly pulling back from Netflix and Rivian as well. And Netflix was, of course, the scene setter for some of the selling. Yeah, I mean, $17 billion Tiger lost. Mm. Um, Dan Loeb argues that they did better by sidestepping some of the tech wreck and uh, buying and owning cyclicals. But we will see, you know, as the, as the numbers and the report card comes through. But it is clear that, you know, I think at, at these price levels now, um, some investors are starting to have a nibble, like the guest that we just interviewed here. I mean, you've got eBay trading at lows now not seen since June 2020. Expedia, January 2021, the last time we saw these numbers. Uh, and you can see it across all sorts of different uh, segments of the market. BlackRock at lows not seen since October of 2020. So as you sort of bingo call, you know, where we are on a lot of these stocks, Inevitably, I think it is going to draw out those bargain hunters and bottom fishers who feel that we may be plateauing here on the inflation story and maybe this is an opportunity to buy stocks at beaten up valuations. The question is, um, are these stocks where they are because we're now seeing a normalisation or are they where they are because, as the guest uh, we just had argued, they are oversold? Yeah, uh, news to, to Cathy Wood's uh, ears, or music to her ears, I should say, as well, given how beaten up her portfolio has been, that there could be some dabbling back in the, the tech space. But I think there might even be a lesson, too, in what Warren Buffett has been doing. And don't forget, it's not all just tech. I mean, going back into some of the banks, as we talk about this margin expansion story for the banks as well, with interest rates going up, but also in some of those big plays that are the big oil majors, given the dividend payouts, thinking about the sort of cash that can be returned to shareholders over the coming phase. That was the argument for the banks too. So if you think about how to balance portfolio at this point, look for the dividend payers that have been the outperformers in this particular cycle. I mean, you're going to hear a lot of opinions here. And for, for any of our audience who relatively new to this game, it is just worth bearing in mind here that there are still many reasons for things happening in the market that are very opaque. Uh, and, and, you know, we've got Biden and Bezos shouting at each other 
uh, via the platform of Twitter. This is sort of megaphone diplomacy around where they think the direction of the economy is headed. We have massive supply chain disruptions still working their way through the system here. We have no normalization as far as these port facilities in China is concerned. Lots of reasons to actually not know what the new normal is going to look like yet until we get there. And then the bond market is sending you these signals that yields are starting to come down already because they feel at least we've achieved a point where perhaps inflation is peaking. Yeah, I think we're hearing two sides to the story, aren't we? If you've been long this market, then you're having to take the hit and deleverage. And if you were sitting on the sides a little bit and missed out on some of the rally, had cash to deploy, you might be getting your opportunity. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.